Let's uh, turn to our Bibles in the New Testament, the letters after the Gospels and the book of Acts come the letters, the important book of Romans and then 1 Corinthians, we're in 2 Corinthians, the third of the letters into the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're opening to that portion of God's word, let me welcome those who might be watching our uh, taped sermon or watching live on stream. It's good that you have technology to connect, but we invite you to join with us and to meet God's people and to to be here uh, in person. I'll be reading from God's holy word from the English Standard Version, an excellent translation from the Greek. And we're going to drop in the argument that Paul's making as he attacks these false teachers in verse 7, and we'll read down to verse 15 following up on what we've been reading in recent weeks. So here's what God says through the Apostle Paul. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he give us understanding and may he help those who hear, believe, and obey his word. Amen. Amen. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of a very challenging but very clear passage, I uh, just want to take note that it is graduation season here uh, in our community. Uh, Pretty soon, I guess it's a few weeks away, the high school will graduate its seniors. And I have a senior, so the cap and gown have been ordered, I think. and we're excited to watch uh, our graduate walk across the platform and get her diploma for which she's worked, and, and then we'll have to say goodbye if she goes off to college. Uh, one thing I've learned that I didn't know, and I've lived in the community this long, I didn't know that the seniors at Shenandoah get their caps and gowns, and on a given day before graduation, they get dressed up, and they go to their elementary school that they once attended. Had you, had you heard of this tradition? I, I had to actually double check it. That's what they do. They take the graduates in their green and white caps and gowns for Shenandoah, and they march through Chango and the, the different 
elementary schools around town. And it's beautiful. All the elementary children are standing on the edge of the hallway with the teachers spaced, and the graduates walk up and down the hallways. Why do they do that? Certainly, it's a trip down memory lane for those people, and, and the graduates walking down the hallway say, boy, all the lockers have shrunk, uh, and the coat hooks are down low. It's not just a trip down memory lane. I think someone wise, whether it's Dr. Robinson or somebody else in the school district, came up with a good idea. This connects the youth at the beginning of the school pipeline in elementary school with the finished product. Those who are just learning the ins and outs of school in elementary grades see the graduates up close. And maybe they know, oh, that's so-and-so's brother, that's so-and-so's sister. They get a good look at the finished product, the goal, the destination of education in one sense, the graduation day. I like that. I like that in the Bible... The Apostle Paul often holds out to other pastors and to believers what that finish line looks like. He wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 this familiar phrase. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He's reminding Timothy of the process and the goal that you, Timothy, in your pastoring, it's not about the numbers who attend your church. It's not about your popularity. It's not about how much money you make in your ministry. As a worker, to be approved by God and not be ashamed, you need to be one who rightly handles the word of God. And every preacher, anyone who's taught, is aware of that verse. And we don't want to mess up. We want to be a workman who is approved. And I didn't attend the Awana program, but I like what Awana does with that verse with our youngest children, teaching them God's word and setting them out from Sparky's on up on the straight and narrow. Approved workmen are not ashamed. Paul reminded Timothy of that in the context of... exposing false teachers that were in his midst. We're going to get to these false teachers in Corinthians in just a minute. But it's interesting, it's not just in Corinth. It was where Timothy was. And it's in the church even throughout the ages. False teachers, twists and spins on the gospel or the word of God. People with corrupt motives and corrupt character mishandling the word of God. Paul says they're not going to graduate. Their end will correspond with their deeds. As they deceived, they will be deceived. They will not be welcomed by Jesus if they promote another Jesus or another salvation. It's a false end for false teachers. It's a dead end for a dead and lifeless message if that's what they're promoting. But Paul encourages Timothy to be the right kind of worker. And when Paul writes to Timothy and when Paul writes to the Corinthians, the passage before us, he talks about the right and wrong types of workers. And I I thought we could title the sermon Approved Workmen, but I think Paul's emphasis in the passage before us ought to color the sermon title. 
He really dwells on the unfaithful workmen, the false teachers. And I'm not trying to continue the stereotype that Bible preachers are always negative. There's a lot of good news coming today. But we can't ignore what Paul does here. And we've got to get these people out of the way, both in our day, even as Paul sought them to clear out in his day. So Paul starts here in our section in verse 7, where we had left off. And from 7 to 11, he talks about the, the marks of his being a faithful workman. So he does put that out first as he engages and grapples with the Corinthians, people he knew well, places in Corinth where he had been, in their homes and in their small groups, in their pulpit. He knew these people. And as he writes, he defends the way he worked among them. For instance, the first thing he brings up, uh, did I commit sin in humbling myself? What does Paul mean by that? He means he preached the gospel free of charge. And on top of that, he met a lot of his own expenses by being a tent maker, literally a tent maker. And those two things were upsetting to the congregation in Corinth as people stirred the church up. The false teachers had come in and said, you know, If you can't get paid for being a public speaker, you must not be very good. And maybe the the wealthy patrons just don't agree with Paul if he wouldn't take their money. Not taking money from the patrons in Corinth was a social misstep. Paul was out of step. No, that's the norm, Paul. Take the honorarium. He said no. Although it was against the social conventions of the day, Paul had the desire to be an unencumbered preacher. That's the big word of the day, by the way, if you're not familiar with unencumbered. It's got a couple of syllables to it, but I hope you get the gist. He wanted to be free from entanglements. He didn't want to have his feet get snared in obligations to someone. What does it mean to be uh, unencumbered? To be encumbered uh, means that you're, or to be beholden to someone means that you owe them a favor or a gift. You have obligations, like politicians, when they take a lot of money from somebody, they can't come out and pass a law against that person without facing some social pressures. You get encumbered. You become beholden. Paul didn't want that. He wanted to preach the gospel free of charge. Other apostles made their living by the gospel. Paul defended that. It's very clear that that was a biblical principle. He just said, I'll pass. Especially in Corinth where they were hung up with their money and their connections and drawing esteem and power and basing their veracity on their financial statement. Paul said, I didn't sin by doing that. Do you see why I did it? That you might be exalted? I preach free of charge? He also uh, mentioned down in verse 9, he refrained uh, from burdening anyone. Um, uh, He didn't burden anyone. And part of that was the supply. I'll get to that. But if you remember what Paul did, he was a tent maker. 
You could take a peek at Acts chapter 18. He shows up and meets Aquila and Priscilla, other Christian leaders. And those folks used the materials of the day to make tents. And Paul says, oh, I know how to do that. I could do that to get the pocket money I need without encumbering myself among the church, the people I'm trying to plant and helping and making sure they don't think I'm teaching them just for their money or bringing them into a church to make money. So Paul took up literally tent making. I don't know how hard it is to sew through leather or canvas. What would that do with your hands and the primitive tools they had to, to use? But Paul worked with his hands. and Boy, that was another social faux pas in Corinth. You know, if you're a professional, you really don't want to be doing that stuff. You buy your tent from somebody. You pay somebody to do that, Paul. So they looked down on Paul for humbling himself in that way. You see, Corinth had all the hang-ups of a modern western city, which judged on exterior measures, the clothes you wore, the company you keep, the bling you could display. Paul Barnett points out that Corinth, due to its location and its wealth, was plagued with visiting money-hungry prophets and philosophers. It was rampant. Paul says, I'm going to be unencumbered. I'm going to be different. And they use that against him. Secondly, Paul says, I've been supported by faithful, missions-minded believers. That's where he mentions the folks from Macedonia as he goes here. Uh, I robbed other churches, verse 8. He, he uses hyperbole here. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. The brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. You have to remember, Macedonia was a broad region, and he's referring to other churches, including Philippi, which were not as wealthy as Corinth. Can you imagine a major church work on the, uh, on, uh, the east side of Manhattan in a, in a gorgeous building with a lot of limousines in front? Being outgiven by folks in West Virginia? You know, we fill in our stereotypical modern-day images. That's what was happening here. People, faithful Christians of modest means, were supporting Paul so that he could reach out to the, the wealthy cosmopolitan Corinthians to be unencumbered yet have what he needed and give the Macedonians the joy of giving. And he puts this dig into them in Corinth, saying it's like robbing them. And it's to the shame of the Corinthians that they still had those materialistic measurements. Paul would write uh, to the Philippians in chapter 4, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs again and again. It is blessed to give. And Paul appreciated those brothers, even as he was guarded in Corinth. It's important if you're trying to judge a workman that you follow the money. We'll say more later. 
A third mark that Paul seems to display here in this first paragraph of our text, as we get down to verses 10 and 11, he talks about his selfless love. He talks about his selfless love. He's defending his humble position and his tent making. He says he's going to keep doing that. I'm not going to burden you guys. I'm not taking money from you in Corinth. He didn't want that complication. In verse 10, he says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. That's where Corinth was. So around here, they're going to know that this is the way I am. And the people in Corinth ought to change their haughty views. So this isn't going to change. And he says, why? Because I do not love you. Are, Are people using this against you? No. It's because I do love you that I'm taking these positions. The word for love here is the Greek word agape, the Christian love, the selfless love, the giving love without expectation of getting reciprocal love. It's agape love. And Paul had opened his heart to the Corinthians. That's clear time and time again. Earlier in the chapter, in chapter 1 of Second Corinthians, Paul said, uh, I didn't come to you. I wanted to refrain from coming to Corinth because I didn't want to lord it over your faith. We want to work with you for your joy. He had them in his heart. Talks about that in chapter 6. He'll talk about that in chapter 12. He cared. His heart was in it. And they should have remembered that, not been fooled or bamboozled. Well, to summarize what Paul's saying here about the good workmen, um, this was a summary that I picked up this week. Paul lives out the gospel, humbling himself so that others might be exalted, even as Christ did for him. He follows Jesus' lead in loving the rebellious church and is grieved by their disloyalty to him. Paul works on different terms than the false apostles. While they are deceitful and disguised, he is honest and open in ministry. He's the approved workman, rightly handling both the word of God and rightly handling himself and his relationships. Then he goes on to talk about the menace of the deceitful workers. Verses 12 and following this paragraph, the gloves are off. Here and later on, he will duke it out with these false apostles. He's had enough. He called them uh, super apostles previously, using that hyper prefix. Now he's going to call them a few other names. And what, just, just before we unpack all those names, the big takeaway is something must be really important. Something valuable must be at stake for Paul to take the gloves off like this. This is some of the harshest language Paul uses. And he brings up the devil, for he is at work. They weren't just competing for the leadership. They were distressing the gospel and the church and leading people astray. If you think you know Christ but don't, if you follow a Christ and it's not the Christ of the Bible, if you try to obtain salvation before the God of the Bible through your own righteous works of righteousness, that's insufficient. You need Christ. You need his works. You need to be saved by faith in him, by grace from him. A lot was at stake. He calls them false apostles. They're false workmen. Paul's the right workmen. They're the false apostles. 
And what, am I, what I'm doing, verse 12, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Paul's saying they're not apostles. They don't do what I was called to do. They are different and they are dangerous. And I'm out to unmask them. They are false. The word used here when he gets to naming them, he says that uh, uh, false apostles in verse 13, that's the pseudo prefix. Uh, we, we've heard the word pseudo uh, 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 in, in many combinations, and my mind is trying to blank even as I say that. Uh, there's a pseudo narrative. There's a, if you have a different name that you're operating under, you don't want people to know who you are. There's a pseudonym. We, we've heard this. It's a false name. It's a false whatever the noun is. It's here. The only time in the New Testament Paul puts it together, they are pseudo-apostolos, false apostles. But they use the word apostles, they call themselves apostles, and they pretend to be at least as good as Paul, actually better than Paul. We're the super version for whatever reason. And Paul say, no, they are not like me, and I'm here to expose them. They're making this claim. Paul, Paul mentions this word claim. I want to undermine the claim of those. The claim, uh, you might think of in terms, not just as a, a statement, think in terms of <clears throat> the gold rush, 1849, people going to California. They find a little stream and they find lots of gold nuggets in that stream. What do they need to do? They need to file a claim. I'd like to buy that property, or at least the rights to the minerals on that property. How do I do that? They found gold, and they want access to the gold. So you have to make a claim. That's the idea behind this Greek word. It means a starting point, a means to accomplish an objective, an occasion, an opportunity. It's the word, the, the word claim, that foot-in-the-door move of the false apostles it's the same word that's used in Romans 7 where Paul says, that sin that's always bothering me, I don't want to do it, but it has this claim upon me. It seizes the opportunity. Remember? You've read that in, in Romans 7. That's what these false apostles were doing. They weren't just strolling around with a good PR line. They wanted to put down roots and seize the opportunity for the money, for fame, for a following, Come what may. So when you hear that, that's even the first sign that something's very wrong about them. This claim, they, they want to use the, the right language and come in disguise and pull this off so that they can have a place, an opportunity among you. What was the false gospel that they brought? Most likely they were bringing up Old Testament law-keeping, and self-righteousness. There's a clue down in verse 15 as the passage hangs together. Uh, he's talking about servants of Satan. It's no surprise then if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That's probably one of the lines they used. Oh, hello, Corinthians. I'm here. I'm a super apostle. I actually saw Jesus once, and I, I used to live in Jerusalem, and I'm better than Paul because I'm articulate and handsome and I'm willing to take your money. I don't do manual labor, so I must be a real professional. And I'm here to tell you how 
to be a servant of righteousness. How you can be more righteous than what Paul's talking about. Can you, can you just picture? They're trying to sell something. I did once work as a Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman. I like Kirby's. They're good machines. I don't own one. But I remember the techniques you would use to sell it. And you would often put it through its paces in ways that the homeowner would probably never need. And uh, all the tricks. I, I won't regale you with the stories, although I am tempted. So this is restraint. These false apostles made claims to sell themselves that I can help you make sure you're right with God. And it, the, you hear the echoes of self-righteousness being promoted. It's not enough just to come as a sinner to Jesus and plead on his name and be born again. You really need to do this and do this and do this to be saved. Legalism comes to mind. Maybe they were advocating circumcision as the opponents in Galatians were. Jewish law keeping. Oh, oh, you still, I know Peter says it's okay to eat any kind of food, but I would stay away from this, this, and this. They would come up with their own agenda about how to serve righteousness. They would pull people away from the sufficient righteousness of Jesus Christ. Clothed in his robe, I can stand before God forgiven. But don't teach me how to make my own robe of righteousness. I dare not show up in that. I will be ashamed. They're false apostles, false workmen with the false gospel. The other description he uses, the second one is they are deceitful, deceitful workmen. And that's talking about their methods. They were using worldly ways and techniques. Paul has been chipping away at that throughout his letter. Now he's finally calling them out. They don't play fair. They don't do what's right in honoring God in how they do their work. They do a theological bait and switch. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's very real. Very real. Somebody dangles just enough gospel out there or a Bible verse to get your interest and then they take off wherever they want. It was the common practice of a lot of mainline Protestant liberal theologians and preachers. It sounds like they're giving you the Bible, but they're giving you some progressive agenda. And they twist the words of Jesus, a theological bait and switch. That's what these guys were doing. When Paul was decrying uh, these sorts of people to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 2, he said, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Keep an eye on these guys. Their techniques will give them away. They're deceitful workmen. Paul had already shared how he worked among them. I don't, I don't want your money. I'm not just telling you what you might want to hear so I can get your money. I worked hard on my own accord. Why did I do all that work? So that I could teach you. That I could love you and lead you. I want to do what's for your joy and for your good. Not for my glory, not for my manipulative ends. These were deceitful workmen. Their end will correspond to their, their deeds. And there are deceitful workmen today. I always hesitate to call out names. I'm not the final judge. God is. But you ought to know that people that used to walk squarely among evangelicals have gone astray. 
famous pastor down south. He's got a TV ministry, one of the biggest churches in America. Went on a little rant of how we got to stop preaching the Ten Commandments and sharing them with our kids because that's Old Testament. We don't need that anymore. It's, it gets in the way to talk about the Ten Commandments. All we need is Jesus' commandment about love. It's a path away from the gospel. Jesus did not come to abolish the moral law. He came to fulfill it. This isn't just a history lesson. There are people today writing books, making videos, quoted on social media that sound, well, they look pretty good. They sound pretty good. But something's wrong. We need to be alert. Perhaps Paul pulls out all the stops when he brings up the devil. He talks about Satan. He says in verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves. He's connecting these evildoers in the congregation at Corinth as serving Satan and behaving like Satan in their disguises, in their cloak of light. Satan's modus operandi is to to not come at you with a red suit and a pitchfork because you would probably start running before you could get close. It's been many years since I was in Minneapolis. Minneapolis has a fine art museum. And of all the art that I saw there, one to this day, one piece of art still comes back to mind time and time again. I haven't looked up the artist. I haven't looked for it online recently. So this is going back 40-some years. Very large portrait. It looked like a garden setting. And it caught my eye because it had this Jesus-like figure or ancient person standing on one side. I think the picture was entitled The Temptation of Christ. And in front of him was a little girl with pigtails and a frilly dress. And she had some flowers. And she's holding it up to Jesus. And there's kind of how the artists do it. There's a glow about this little, seemingly little and harmless girl. And the painting was called The Temptation of Christ. Then I remembered Satan disguises himself. And what might appear harmless could be the beginning of a temptation to stray. And it was artist, artful interpretation and suggestion and all of that at work. But it reminded me, don't be taken in by the disguise, even an angel of light. That's the way Satan works. He presents the bait and he hides the hook. He hides who he really is and why he's really working. He works in disguised ways. His, his language. We, often, we already talked about the, the bait and switch. How they'll maybe quote a Bible verse and go off or throw the Bible out. This angel of light will, will use Christian lingo. He'll use the right terms but have a different meaning and that becomes the fallacy of equivocation where you might use the exact same term but mean something different there's a lot of that going on in the world 
And that's why it's important to define your terms. What are we talking about? What do you mean by that? There's some that teach uh, salvation by the sacraments of their church and a, a works righteousness, but they will say, oh yes, we're saved by grace, but it's grace that's earned and merited as we jump through all the hoops. Well, is that really grace? Equivocation. Grace, God's unmerited favor. Unmerited, not earned by keeping all the sacraments and going to confession and receiving final unction where you top off, oh good, I got 51% grace, I'm saved. No. You're religious. These disguises, a cloak of light, often practice the fallacy of equivocation, meaning one thing, using the same term differently than it should be. That's a danger when it comes to the gospel. So it's important to define your terms. For our third heading this morning, I want to briefly point you to the one who is the, the faithful servant of the Lord, the Messiah. I want to take a jump. I'm, I'm called as a preacher not just to teach through the scriptures, this is what these words mean and how they fit together, but in the course of making God's word clear to you, preach Christ and him crucified, right? That's what we're all about in church, preaching Christ. There is a wonderful connection with this passage as we've talked about the good workman and the bad workman to talk about the ultimate workman, the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Think of this. Jesus is the first true apostle. He was sent by the Father. Jesus is the true light of the world. That's a contrast right off the bat between these false apostles and their false teachings. Jesus said in John 21, excuse me, 20 verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Jesus was sent. He's the first apostle. And he said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or in John 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And the veracity of who he was, the reality that he was the true light, was attested by signs and wonders throughout his ministry. He gave his commission to his apostle. He allowed the apostles to perform signs and wonders to confirm their ministry. And Paul did work signs and wonders among the Corinthians. He mentions that in chapter 12, that he had performed signs and wonders among them. 12 verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul does that because he is genuinely commissioned by Christ and Christ confirmed his message, salvation only in me. Look at these signs, look at these wonders. Behold the work of God in your midst. There's a consistency when we look to the faithful servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. The world's definition of success has no transformative power says Derek Prime. Whatever message they give you won't change you the way the gospel of Jesus will. 
I also want to take you on a quick tour without uh, actually turning through the pages of Isaiah. Let me just tell you what you will find. In Isaiah, there are four servant songs. You'll find the first one in Isaiah 42, and then Isaiah 49, and then Isaiah 50, and then Isaiah 53. Servant songs. What are these? These are messianic predictions. These are, let me put it in workman terms, the job description of the Messiah. When the real workman comes and the real work of salvation is to be done, this is what the servant of the Lord will look like. In Isaiah 42, you'll see that he is humble and gracious. In Isaiah 42, you'll see that he is persevering. And you'll see in Isaiah 42, verse 6, he is given as a light to the nations. Jesus fulfilled all of that. In the second song in Isaiah 49, you will see from verse 2 that this servant will have a mouth like a sharp sword. Jesus spoke such piercing words. He cut through the, the blarney of the scribes and the Pharisees and he spoke truth and he hid truth from those who were needed to be hidden from in his parables. He, he said, this is for you who have faith to understand. He was keen with his mouth. Isaiah 49 talks about how he was despised by the nation, and yet he would have compassion on the afflicted, 49.13. And in the third servant song, Isaiah 50, it talks about how he would endure abuse. Jesus, the faithful servant of God, the Savior, and his true apostles would suffer that same abuse, as does Paul. Well, the final servant song is the fourth one is found in Isaiah 53. It begins in the last verse of chapter 52. And we know what that says. It tells us that this worker has won our salvation. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Brought us peace. He didn't bring us a checklist for our own salvation to to make up our own righteousness. By his wounds we're healed. His righteousness is imputed to us. We are declared, saved, adopted, forgiven by God. The messianic work for sinners. This worker has won our salvation. Paul would write to the Ephesians in chapter 2, God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let no one put you through the paces of self-righteous works. Do not believe the false teachers or the false gospels or follow them in their folly. Many of them are just after your money. In closing, what can we say? As a pastor, there's so many things here. I don't necessarily want us looking for all the bad guys to weed them out. First and foremost, I want us to see Paul's emphasis. 
that all this nonsense in Corinth wasn't changing his conviction to serve the Lord faithfully. So that's our first application. May we serve the Lord faithfully even when we're attacked, abused, or misunderstood. Stay the course. People don't understand why you go to church on a beautiful Sunday morning and sit inside when you could be out by the lake or home with your newspaper. Stay the course. Serve the Lord faithfully. See the faithfulness who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the Lord Jesus. See the faithfulness of his apostle Paul. Paul said, I will keep my principled path. I will persevere. May we also. And yes, there is an application here to stand against those who twist and oppose the gospel. We need to stand against those. We, it's not our mission to weed them out. But when they draw near, when we have opportunity, we cannot be silent. Peter warned his people in his second epistle, he said, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You don't want to be around those guys. They will self-destruct and bring others down. I am worried that many of us with gifts of discernment and we see all the wrong things being taught make that our ministry. To just speak about who needs to be walled off, who needs to be unmasked. To the point that it can distract us from our faithful service. From tending to the needy. Let the life of the Lord Jesus Christ guard us and guide us here. When he was around those Pharisees, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He didn't mince words. But day in, day out, he loved the broken people around him. He gave them hope. He told them about forgiveness of sins. The judgment day is coming. We know who the prosecutor and judge will be. The Holy Spirit will convict the world. Jesus will judge the world. But today is the gospel age where there is still hope to draw men and women and boys and girls into the kingdom. Let us be oh so careful as we serve and stand. And of course, personally, the last application is to see and trust the Savior. He is the faithful worker of our salvation. Jesus has done all that is necessary for you to arrive in heaven. The work he's begun in you, he will complete. Remember, he's washing Peter's feet and Peter was upset with that. No, I can wash my own feet. Jesus says, no, I am the one who will save you and cleanse you from your sin. And if you can't handle this, how can you handle my death for you? See and trust this Savior. I think in one regard, we're like those elementary students here in town that are going to see graduates walk by them. But I would change the picture, and I'm just trying to be illustrative. 
the false teachers would say, uh, you can do that all of your own accord. You can achieve that, and that's fine. We do that in education. But when it comes to salvation, we cannot save ourselves. The one we watch walk by us is the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory. The one who said it is finished and turns to us and says, you are forgiven. You are mine. I've won your salvation. Enter into the joy of your master. Trust the finished work of Christ. Hear the exhortation to the Hebrews. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He will come again for all his own. For he is our Savior, Lord, and King. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that your word will give clarity to our thinking and our understanding of this broken world and some of the evil that's afoot. It is around. But Father, may we not be distracted from our faithful service, our humble labors in your kingdom with the one true gospel, pointing men to the one true worker of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, make yourself known afresh today. That those who have labored with a guilty conscience, that those who have been striving to be religious and to make themselves right would understand that you've graduated. You have the victory over sin and death and you have a righteousness to bestow upon whosoever believes in him. Father, do all these things for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.